How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together this evening to study your word and to be refreshed and encouraged by the study of your word and that we might come to understand more about the Christian life and especially the area of impersonal love and unconditional love. Love is supposed to be the outstanding characteristic of a believer in the church age. As Jesus said, it was by our love that people would know that we are his disciples. Father, we pray that we might uh, come to a better understanding of love tonight and that we might come to a better understanding of what you teach in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19, and tonight we'll finish up Romans 12, and then uh, next week we'll get into Romans uh, 13, dealing with uh, some other issues, coming back again to the topic of love as it seems to run through as a thread through the next uh, two or three chapters. It's mentioned again in, um, in the 13th chapter. 14th chapter deals with the issue of doubtful things again, talks about the law of liberty and the law of love. And then in chapter 15, talking about bearing one another's burdens. Of course, that's related to uh, loving one another. So in the next three chapters, this is the thread that, that runs through and ties them together uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Uh, Romans 12:19 begins beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord now as we look at uh, Romans chapter 12 look at verse 19 it connects back to verse 17 where Paul had uh Challenge them, repay no one evil for evil. So this thread dealing with how we react when people do bad things to us, or we are victims from other people's bad decisions, in some cases intentional decisions, is one that runs through this section. I pointed out as we started in verse 9 that even though love is a is in the background of several of these verses, it's not really an exposition. These are more bullets of different different mandates, different principles that should govern the behavior of any believer. So when we come to verse 19, we have this challenge, Beloved, which addresses b- believers, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Now, the key idea here that's mentioned twice as translated as the word avenge in the beginning of the verse, and then vengeance is mine, the quote, which comes from the uh, Old Testament, which comes from Deuteronomy, also uses the same verb, and this is the verb ek dikeo. Now, vengeance is one of those words that we need to talk about just a little bit because for uh, most of us, we think of vengeance uh, 
as personal vindictiveness, that an individual has been treated or believes they have been treated poorly, and so they want to get back at the person who has somehow insulted them, somehow offended them, and somehow maltreated them. Whether it is justifiable or not, it's motivated by a self-centered desire out of the sin nature, a mental attitude sin with a desire to be the one to inflict justice on this person who has done something egregiously unjust. So we need to look at these words because that's not exactly the sense that we have in the passage that we're, that we're talking about. The verb ekdikeo in the Greek means, first of all, to procure justice for someone or to grant or to give justice. So it is a word related to the application of justice, whether human or divine. It's not a concept of personal, a necessary personal vendetta. Second, to inflict an appropriate penalty for wrong done, to punish or to take vengeance for someone. And then third meaning is to carry out one's obligations in a worthy manner or to do justice to someone. That's the meaning of the verb ek dikeo. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that certainly sounds far removed from the concept of vengeance. And I think part of this is because we don't really have a good, clear understanding of vengeance. And so look this up in the um, Oxford English Dictionary. And vengeance means a punishment that is inflicted or retribution that is exacted for an injury or wrong. Now, that can relate to either the, something done by the judicial system or by an individual. When it's done by an individual out of a, a motive of, uh, of subverting or going around the judicial system, that's when it's the wrong kind of vengeance. When in the right sense, that is what is exacted by the court. Technically, that's what the word means. It's not inherently a negative word, although I think in everyday usage, that's what we normally think of when we use the term vengeance. But when we look it up, and I looked it up in Webster, four or five different dictionaries, and that's basically the, the meaning goes along with the, with the OED here. It depends, once again, on, on the context of how we use it. So we have to think about it. So we're not to avenge ourselves. The idea there is we're not to take justice into our own hands and subvert the normal processes of the judicial procedure of police, investigations, charges in court, and trial before a jury. This is not taking uh, justice into our own hands as opposed to uh, the Lord's hands. But you see, then the next phrase where we have a contrast, first of all, don't take justice into your own hands is what the passage is saying, but rather give place to wrath. Now, what does that mean? The word here is orge, which is a word that is commonly used, as we'll see in a couple of passages, to refer to God's God's executing justice in time in human history. This is exactly what we've seen in the book of Romans when we look at how this word is used. 
if we turn back to the very first chapter of Romans. In Romans 1.18, we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if we think of wrath in, in sort of a way which people use it in an everyday sense, we think of wrath as an emotional outburst, as emotion-driven anger. But that's not really the sense as it's used when it's used in a judicial context. We don't have a picture of God throwing an emotional tantrum in heaven. Now, there are a lot of theologians and I've heard, and some pastors who will look at the phrase, the wrath of God, and they try to use this to demonstrate that God has emotion. And this is a problem, and I think it's a twofold problem. First of all, we're trying to impute to God human emotion, which is a, a, a real problem. And the second problem is that we don't understand the figure of speech when we talk about wrath in terms of justice. Uh, perhaps the best way to illustrate this would be to think about some other idioms we use when we talk about going to court. Somebody gets arrested for speeding, doing 90 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour speed zone, and they appear before the judge, and they get a $2,000 fine, and they have to do a number of hours of community service. They will say that the judge threw the book at them. That's an emotive metaphor. The judge may have been extremely dispassionate. He may have been objective. He may not have gotten emotional whatsoever. He certainly didn't literally pick up a book and throw it at the uh, speeder. It is simply a, an idiom to express the intensity of the punishment. It has nothing, it really says nothing about the literal nature of the emotional status of the judge. We might also hear somebody say that the, 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 the anger of the court was felt, the wrath of the court was felt by the speeder. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that the judge was angry. It doesn't mean that the judge was emotional. It doesn't indicate that at all. It is simply a figure of speech that we use to express the, the extreme nature of the penalty against the offending party. This is the way the wrath of God is used in Scripture. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, I remember one time, won't mention his name, but this was a, 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 a scholar we all know and love, had written a paper to try to defend emotion in God. And I challenged him on this because I told him, I said, the wrath of God is simply an anthropomorphism. And he said, how can you say that? I said, it's worse than that. You didn't look at the Hebrew. He's a Hebrew major. He should have. You didn't look at the Hebrew. The Hebrew is actually an anthropopathism. Now, an anthropomorphism is when you attribute a, something about human physiognomy to God in order to communicate something. We talk about the eyes of God going to and fro on the earth or being held in the hand of God. God doesn't have eyes like we have eyes. He doesn't have a hand. Uh, we have other phrases, the arm of God. Well, arm represents strength. Hand represents strength as well as grip. That, so that's what these figures of speech are expressing. They're using a human form to express something about God. It doesn't mean God has a hand, an arm, a head, 
eyes, a, a nose, but they're used to express something. Well, in the Hebrew, for example, uh, in, in Hebrew thought, emotions are often expressed by references to bodily parts. Uh, the word in, and the Greek was the same way. The word in Greek for mercy is splanknoi, which has to do with the bowels. You have the same kind of thing going on in Hebrew, having to do with the bowels when somebody is upset or angry, something like that. But the idiom that they use, the, the literal meaning of the idiom that's used in Hebrew, if someone gets angry, is that their nose burns. Their nose burns. So when you read in the Hebrew, God was wrathful with Israel, it doesn't say that. In, there's not a literal word for wrath there in the text. It says God's nose burned against the Israelites. See, that's an anthropomorphism. To express an anthropopathism, an anthropopathism is when you ascribe a human emotion to God that he doesn't actually possess in order to express or teach something about God. So an anthropomorphism is to use a, a, a human body part, which God doesn't actually possess, in order to communicate something about God's plan or purpose, and an anthropopathism is to use a human emotion that God doesn't actually possess in order to, again, communicate something about God's plans or purpose. So in the Old Testament, we read God's nose burned. Well, God doesn't have a nose, so right away we know it's not literal. He doesn't have a nose that burns. But a burning nose means somebody is getting emotional and upset and losing their temper and they're getting red in the face and their nose is getting red. And so that's the meaning of, of anger or wrath. Well, God is not a God who looks up there, and when somebody does something uh, sinful, God doesn't just get all upset. First of all, God is omniscient. For billions and billions and billions of years in etern into eternity past, God has always known that Israel would commit idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments. God didn't just learn about this. When, when the event happened in time, he's known about this forever. So question, if God has known about it forever, has God been eternally angry at Israel for that event? No. It's an expression of his justice, of, of the outworking and the expression of his justice, same as we have in, in, um, in Romans 1.18. And I covered this back when we went through Romans, Romans 1, that this expresses the justice of God, the outworking of God's judgment on, on sinful human beings. It doesn't mean God is literally losing his temper or angry, but that he is, ex, it's, he's giving full expression to his uh, judicial condemnation of a particular event. And so that's what has happened here is that we're not to have revenge, but we are to allow God to work out the judgment. We're to put it in the hands of God. That's the expression, for it is written, indicates this is explaining the principle from the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, the word for vengeance there is the same word we saw just a minute ago from ekdikeo, and it means the ultimately the execution of justice is God's. It says, I will repay. The word for repay there is the word antipodidomi, 
which means to pay back or recompense or to bring, in a judicial sense, it is to uh, bring about the penalty for someone's uh, actions that are disobedient to the law. Now, this is very similar to what we find in the Old Testament passage. The quote here in Romans 12:19 comes from Deuteronomy 32:35, where God says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. In other words, I will repay. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten to them. But the principle just at the beginning, vengeance is mine. The Hebrew word for vengeance is nakam, which again is uh, defined or translated as take vengeance, revenge, avenge oneself, be avenged, or be punished. Actually, it has the same connotation as the other. This is how it's translated. The idea of nakam is, again, a judicial action, taking a judicial action uh, from the justice of God. So it's not personal, a personal vendetta or personal vindictiveness. This is one of those areas where, of course, you can see that somebody reading the Scripture here would could easily get the wrong idea and come to a wrong conclusion that, well, God's just this vindictive God. Well, that's because of a failure to understand either the meanings of the English word, as, as I've shown you, if you look vengeance up in an English dictionary, its primary meaning has to do with bringing about and inflicting punishment or bringing about justice for disobedience. That's the same idea in the, in the Hebrew, Hebrew word. So let's look at a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Because most most often what we see in the Old Testament is that vengeance or nakam is an execution uh, of the justice of God. God is the one who rules the universe. He is the judge who oversees human history. And we're to, as Peter says, cast all our care upon him. We're to put it in the Lord's hands. Now, a question that may come up is, well, what about when someone does wrong, someone commits a crime? Do we just pray about it, or, or should we go through the process of... Uh, microphone seems to be a little off or something there. Um, what, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, God established government. He established law. And, of course, that's the procedure that we're to utilize. We're to utilize the structures and the format that God has set up for handling uh, these kinds of things. Beyond that... We put it into the Lord's hands so that if somebody commits a crime against us or somebody defrauds us or somebody commits some other act against us, if, it is not, um, if it's not possible to take this into a courtroom to, to find justice, then we have to put it into the Lord's hands and let the Lord take care of it. It's not up to us to go out and execute justice on someone who has committed a crime are some sort of offense against us. Now, when we look at a couple of other, a couple of Old Testament examples, even though most of the time in the Old Testament it is God who is the one who is uh, executing justice or nakam, we do have a couple of passages in the Old Testament where God allows or uh, delegates that responsibility to individuals. So let's look at a couple of these examples. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 31. 
Numbers chapter 31. In Numbers chapter 31, we're dealing with a problem that has come up with the, with the um, conflict between the Israelites and the Midianites. And at the beginning of the, of the chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel, and then afterward you shall be gathered to your people. This is right before uh, Moses was taken to, uh, to the Lord at Mount Nebo. And then Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. And then he goes through and he describes what they're supposed to do. And in verse 7, they go out to war, and they're engaged in combat with the Midianites, and they killed all the males, they killed all the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, and list the ones that they killed. Uh, And this is at the tail end of the whole episode where the Midianites were using Balaam to uh, try to bring a curse against, against Israel. But the point that we're seeing here is that This is an execution of justice that's directed by God. So it's not petty vindictiveness which springs from an attitude of selfishness where an individual has been personally offended or insulted or hurt. Now, we're going to see more about this as we go through the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday morning. We're going to come to the passage in a couple of weeks where... um, uh, the Lord talks about turning the other cheek, that if someone slaps you on the cheek, uh, you should turn the other cheek. That's another one of the verses in the Sermon on the Mount that's been used as a justification for pacifism. The problem is that this whole, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're discovering that a lot of these things are related to figures of speech. Slapping someone on the cheek, what in the world do you think that means? you think there was a problem in Israel with people walking around slapping other people on the cheek? Just walk up to somebody, I just walk up to Jeff and just slap you in the face. You think that's what's going on? No, slapping someone in the face was an idiom for being offended. And so what the Lord is talking about is someone offends you, turn the other cheek. In other words, don't be someone who is, is easily offended and is whenever you think you're being slighted that you use that as an, as an excuse to get back at somebody else. It wasn't a problem of, it's not a problem of violence. That's not what the issue was at all. It was a problem of mental attitude. And that's what's going on here. There's a petty or personal vindictiveness that people get into because they think that so-and-so has taken advantage of me. And their whole issue is not on doing what's right. The issue is on getting back at somebody and taking care of myself and protecting myself to the point of making sure that that I'm going to, uh, everything right will be done with regards to my own possessions and, and my own reputation. So... Vengeance here has to do with the execution of justice in war. And because the Midianites had uh, violated Israel's uh, sanctity at this point, Israel needed to engage them in war, and this was the just action that God commanded against them. Now, when we get to the end tonight, we're talking about impersonal love where I ended last time. This is love. 
Love always works in conjunction and in conformity with God's justice and his righteousness. We have such a a twisted view of love today, a view that views love as always kind, and and we, we define it narrowly in sentimental ways, and yet God recognizes that if you don't love the victim then, or it, rather, if you love the victim, you will punish the criminal. Now, some people will say, well, that's not being very loving to the criminal, but it is showing love to society at large to punish the criminal, and it is showing love to the victim to punish the criminal. Uh, we, we distort things too easily, and we come out with a very shallow, distorted concept of what love is. And so God of the Old Testament, some people come along, and you'll often hear liberals say this, well, that God in the Old Testament is just a mean, old, vindictive God. He just wants the Jews to kill everybody. It's not like the loving God of the New Testament. Well, the loving God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament recognized that that love punishes as well as embraces. And there's a time for one and a time for the other. And knowing the difference is wisdom. So taking vengeance on the Midianites is an expression of God's love for Israel. They needed to execute punishment on the offending party. That's something that this country doesn't ever factor in whenever it thinks about any kind of military action or even judicial action. It never thinks of it that way. Another passage comes out of Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. In Joshua chapter 10, uh, 13, this is the battle with the uh, Gibeonites, I believe. And the sun stood still. This is the long battle that's taken place. It's gone on all day long, and the sun is setting. And so Joshua has prayed to the Lord to uh, do something in order to allow them to have victory uh, over the their uh, over their enemies, uh, they're battling the Amorites. I said Gibeonites. I was mistaken. The Amorites, and so they, um, the Lord caused a miracle to take place for the sun to stand still over Gibeon, and as the um, sun stood still, it gave the people time to finish the battle and completely destroy the enemy. And so we read in verse 13, So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge or vengeance upon their enemies. And so they were executing justice upon their enemies. That's what the word means. It was a just battle. So again, we see that God... God uh, delegates responsibility, delegates authority for justice to various human institutions. Now, there are two passages that bear on what is being said in Romans in terms of the prohibition against personal, uh, personally taking the law in one's own hands. Leviticus 19.18 states, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your pe- people. Notice how the focus is really on the mental attitude. Let me connect this back to the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, we're focusing on this section. There are six sections 
where Jesus is contrasting God's view of righteousness, which goes to the root of the issue in terms of the mental attitude behind an action. It's not just the superficial action. And so Jesus will, Jesus addresses this by saying, you have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that you shall not have hatred in your heart towards someone. See, the Pharisees had, had created a superficial view of murder, that murder was simply a prohibition against the physical act of murder, but you could commit all kinds of mental attitude sins of hatred and, and thinking about revenge and these other things, and that was just fine. They, they created a superficial view of the application of the law. So, But even in the Old Testament, it wasn't a superficial approach. The pharisaical interpretation of the law was not correct, and Jesus uh, uh, contrast his view with the pharisaical view, view. And this is what happens when Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he gives what the Pharisees have said. And then he says, but I say unto you, and then he gives the correct interpretation of the, of the Mosaic law. So here in Leviticus 19.18, we read, you shall not take vengeance, that's the overt sin, nor bear any grudge, that's the mental attitude sin that lies behind the overt sin. The worst sins are not the overt sins. They may have worse consequences, but the worst sins are the mental attitude sins that motivate the external uh, overt sins. So you shall not take, but, but that doesn't mean that the mental attitude sin is not a sin and not just as wrong or destructive to the soul of the individual. Uh, just if, if someone thinks about murder all day long, but they never act on it, then that's, in terms of society, that's a great thing because nobody's being killed. But in terms of sin, it has a horrible effect upon the soul of the individual and it will have terrible consequences in his own life, in his own mental attitude, and it's his own spiritual state. But it's better in a relative sense to have the mental attitude sin than to have the overt sin. But in terms of its sinfulness in relation to the righteousness of God, it's just as much a sin. So Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but the contrast, and now we have the positive command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the neighbor is the person who has done something wrong to you. This is the person who has done something that has offended you, something that has insulted you, something that has injured you terribly. Maybe it has caused great damage in your life. It could be uh, any kind of abuse. It can be the kind of abuse of a parent to a child. It, this could include emotional abuse. It could include sexual abuse. It could include all manner of terrible things that one human being can do to another but the command is, you shall not take vengeance. Take it to the courts, put it before the throne of grace and God's justice and let him deal with it, but don't you try to enact vengeance on your own. Instead, what's your personal responsibility to the person who has injured you so terribly? Your responsibility and my responsibility is to love them as I love myself. That can't be done apart from God the Holy Spirit. 
This is why when we look at the passage dealing with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, 21, 22, dealing with the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The first fruit of the Spirit is love because five verses earlier you have a quotation from Leviticus nineteen eighteen that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. How do we do that? And then the next verse, Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, which in context, dealing with Leviticus 19.18, is to enact vengeance on somebody. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want justice. That means you're going to initiate justice in a court of law. And you're going to let a court of law handle it. And if the court of law fails, then you're going to let God handle it and put it in his hands. Now, you shall not, verse, uh, then we'll skip to Deuteronomy 32:35. God says, vengeance is mine and recompense. So God is the one who is ultimately going to bring that about. But God doesn't always bring that about the way we like or in our timing. Sometimes it won't be brought together to final justice until the end times. Turn with me now to Isaiah. In your, We're going to look at a couple of passages in Isaiah that also deal with God's vengeance, God's justice, but in these passages we're going to see that they don't take place until the ultimate fulfillment of the wrath of God, which is at the end of the tribulation period. Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom is the area that is uh, west of the Jordan River. Today it's part of uh, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Edom is an ancient kingdom. Uh, Herod the Great was an Edomite. They're descendants of Esau who was uh, apparently ruddy complexion, red hair, and so he was named uh, Edom, and it has a connotation of, of red. Who is this who comes from Edom who, with dyed garments from Basra? Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ as the conquering Messiah coming back from having rescued the Jews in the area around Petra. The next trip I take to Israel in November, we're going to go to Petra and uh, spend a whole day in Petra, hiking around, be able to see all the different things. that are there. It's an enormous, enormous area, and it's uh, uh, protected by all of these rock formations and all of these hills. And so this is a place where um, tens of thousands of people can hide. What's interesting is in the ancient Nabataean kingdom that was there, they built all of these various buildings out of the out of the rock of the mountains, and then in order to capture rain, they they hollowed out the inside of the mountains into huge cisterns, huge caverns that will that will hold a hundred or two hundred thousand gallons of water, and then for example, when you go down the the souk into uh, most of you, if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you saw the picture at the end when they get on their horses, they ride up the souk as they leave. That was, that ex, uh, exterior was taken there, going into Petra, and down both sides of that that canyon wall, 
they carved out what I would describe as a as a basically a gutter that's about this wide, about 18 inches wide, and it's scooped out, and it runs the entire length of the souk, which is a couple of miles, to capture the water runoff so that if they get a half an inch of rain or a quarter of an inch of rain, all of that rain that would run down would be captured in those gutters and would run all the way down to the base and then into the cisterns inside the mountain. So in a very short amount of rain, maybe just a quarter of an inch, they could capture several hundred thousand gallons of water. And because modern man likes to restore some of these antiquities, they have been restoring these water channels and these cisterns in Petra. And I think that that's just God's probably chuckling about that because this is just preparing things for the end times because when you see the survivors of Israel escape to that area, all of these water systems are going to have been rebuilt and reconstructed so they'll hold water, pardon the pun. And this will be an area where God will protect him. So that's what this passage in Isaiah 63.1 is talking about, that the Messiah comes back, he rescues the Jews who've been hiding in the mountains in the wilderness of Edom, uh, he destroys the one army of the Antichrist there. That's why his garments are dyed with blood. There are other passages that indicate that. He's blood-soaked garments. Uh, this one is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And he says, I speak righteousness mighty to save. And so he is coming to bring about uh Vengeance. You go on to read, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine presses? They're blood-soaked garments. I've, he says, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples. Uh, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger. The peoples are the Gentiles. He has, it's a picture of him destroying the armies of the Antichrist and trampled them in my fury their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained on my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. The day of vengeance. This is when God brings about his final judgment on the Gentile nations, on the Antichrist, and on the false prophet, and on Satan. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. There, that phrase is talking about Israel. This is when this is finalized. Verse 5 says, I looked... But there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. My own fury had sustained me. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. All of this is uh, hyperbolic imagery to stress the, the extent and the severity of the judgment that falls upon the Gentiles when the Messiah comes back. But he brings about justice. There's that word we're looking for in verse 4, the day of vengeance, nakam. Now, another passage that we can go to is in Isaiah 61, 2. Just turn back a page or two. Isaiah 61, 2. This, as well, is a uh, well-known passage it's quoted in uh, in Luke Luke's gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21, the Lord is asked to read from the parashat, that is the scripture reading that day, in the synagogue. And it's no 
coincidence that the Lord shows up on that day. Every day, every Sabbath, every Shabbat, in every synagogue in the world, they're reading from the same uh, portion of Scripture, the same portion, parashah. And so as he, um, the, as he read, there was this section in Isaiah, and the Lord only read down to the first line of verse 2. He stopped there. He read, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, Mashiach is the word for anoint, Messiah, to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then the Lord closed up the scroll and sat down. But look at the next verse. He did that because up to 2a... That fulfillment is at the first advent. The rest of it is fulfilled in the second advent. And the first, the, the next line in verse 2 reads, And the day of vengeance of our God. What day is that? That's the day we just read about in Isaiah 63 when the Messiah comes to rescue Israel and to do the final execution of God's judgment against all evil in human history. That's when that is brought about. So vengeance is the domain of God. It is the execution of his justice against evil. Sometimes this happens in our life when we can see it. Some, most of the time it will not happen until the Lord at, 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 the, uh, at the second coming and then later at the great white throne judgment executes judgment. Now, in verse 20, back to Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, 20, we get an application from this. If we are not to avenge ourselves, if we're not to take it out upon the party that has offended us, if we're to let God execute his judgment, his wrath, and his timing, and his place, then what are we supposed to do? This is where it gets difficult. Therefore... Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You have to be nice to that sorry son of a whatever. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, this is another very interesting passage. This is uh, a quote from Proverbs 25. 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, how in the world are we to do this? Well, let's think about some illustrations of Scripture that might apply. Again, we find one in the Old Testament. So let's go back in the Old Testament. And turn back to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings 6 is focusing on the ministry of Elisha. Elijah was toward the end of 1 Kings. Elisha's ministry covers the first part of 2 Kings. And we're in uh, chapter uh, 6. It has to do with the uh, military threat of the Syrians against the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And we read in verse 8, we pick up the context, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such place. Now, the man of God, that's usually an allusion to Elisha, the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. And then the king of Israel sent someone to this place, with which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once, but twice. So uh, it's nice having a prophet who has a direct uh, ear that, uh, to God so he can find out what the enemy is doing and warn you not to go into an area where there will be uh, an ambush. And so this really bothered the king of Syria because he, he thought somebody in his camp, somebody had betrayed him and warned off the king of Israel because he had this perfect ambush set up, and all of a sudden the king of Israel doesn't take his troops that way. And so verse 11 we read, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. He was really worried, anxious, and angry. And he called his servant and said, Will you not show which of us is for the king of Israel? Where is the traitor in our midst? And one of his servants says, None, O Lord, but Elisha the prophet's in Israel. And he tells the king of Israel the things that you say in your bedroom. You can't hide from God. God's telling Elisha what you're saying, and, uh, and, and that's, that's the leak. So the king said, Go and see where he is. Let's go capture, let's go capture Elisha so that we can uh, finally have victory over the Israelites. And so at this point, they surround the area at Dothan where Elisha and his servant are located. And the servant looks out and sees all the, that they're just surrounded by the armies of, of Syria. Now, things look really bad at that point. And there are a lot of times in our lives when we look out and it looks like whatever our problems are, they're insurmountable, they're overwhelming, and we're just surrounded by them. And we don't look at things from God's viewpoint. And this is what happened with Elisha's servant is he's just not looking at it with the eyes of faith. He doesn't understand that this is God's plan and God's purpose. And just because it looks like they're outnumbered, when God's on your side, you're never outnumbered. And so uh, he, the, the servant's pushing the panic button and says, Alas, my master, what should we do? And Elisha said, Don't fear, for there's a lot more with us than are with them. And Elisha prayed, verse 17. This is a great verse you ought to have underlined. Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and as he looked out on the surrounding hills, he saw the armies of the Syrians But then he saw the armies of the angels, the host of God that was surrounding the armies of the Syrian. And so he realized that that the angels of God outnumbered the Syrians about 10,000 to 1, and there really wasn't much of a problem anymore. So when... um, uh, So in verse 18, the Syrians came... Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike the people with blindness. And he struck them with blindness. That is, he, he is striking the, the Syrians with blindness. And so he, he then tells them, This isn't the way to go. You need to go that way. This is, you're not at the right place. Follow me, and I will take you to the person you seek. And so he led the Syrian army into the heart 
of the northern kingdom of Israel at Samaria, the ancient city of Samaria, later rebuilt by King Herod as Sebasta. And so it's a remarkably huge, huge city, capital of the northern kingdom. And he took, um, Elisha took them there, and all of a sudden then God took the blinders off of them when Elisha prayed, and he had brought the whole army of the Syrians right into the heart of the northern kingdom, right into the middle of the valley where they're now surrounded by the army of Israel. And at that point, Elisha said, okay, Lord, pray, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria and surrounded by the armies of Israel. Now, look at what happens. Verse 21, when the king of Israel saw them, he turns to Elisha and says, should we kill them? Here's the situation. Your enemy is now in your grip. Your enemy is in your hand. You, under every law of 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 warfare that's ever been devised, this is the great opportunity you have to wipe them out and to completely annihilate the army of Syria. And what does Elisha say? Elisha follows the principle that is laid out in Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. What does he say? His answer in verse 22, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. This is their lifelong enemy. The army of Syria constantly for, for generations has been seeking to destroy and control the northern, in, in, the northern kingdom. There's always been this state of hostility between the northern kingdom and Syria, just as today you have this situation in Israel where there's this continuous antagonism and war and hostility and terrorism from the Arabs toward the Jews. And this would be comparable today to bringing all of the worst terrorists together into the heart of Jerusalem, surrounded by the IDF. And the IDF says, well, this is our great opportunity to slaughter them. And the prophet says, don't slaughter them, feed them, and then send them home in safety. This is one reason why the Israel army holds themselves to a higher standard of accountability. Not that they haven't made mistakes. They're sinners. There are, there are problems here and there. But the standard that they hold themselves to and they hold themselves accountable to is this kind of a standard, that they want to go the extra mile in order to protect their adversary. And this comes from the ethic that they derive from the Old Testament. And so this is the same ethic that's for us. We have the Holy Spirit. We are to do the same thing. Now, the explanation that's given at the end of verse 20 is where we get into some interesting and uncertain hermeneutics. We, there's almost universal agreement what this means. We just don't exactly know how, how we get there in terms of the idiom. First time I ever heard this verse quoted, it was quoted out of maliciousness. If somebody has really treated us badly, we need to treat them good so that they'll feel really bad about it. We'll heap coals of fire on them. You want to make somebody feel bad? If they've treated you badly, you just treat them nicely, and then they'll, they'll feel bad. It catches the, the thrust of this is to bring the enemy to repentance. 
But the idea there is not, not the sense of, of, uh, see, that's a rather vindictive attitude. I'm just going to be nice to you so that you'll really feel bad about being mean to me. This may refer to a Egyptian ritual in which a person showed repentance by carrying a pan of burning charcoal on his help. This was, this was mirrored in some of the other cultures. So this would again be talking about an idiom that carrying coals of fire on your head was a, something a, a penitent would do in order to show that they have uh, repented of their hostile attitude. And so that's just the point is if you're kind to somebody, the point is it's, it's better to bring them to a change of mind than it is to kill them. And so that would be the point, is to treat them in goodness and kindness, even though they do not deserve it. And that brings us to the last verse in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil. And the the point here, the verb for overcome, is that word we studied many times before in Revelation and other passages, the word from uh, Nike, the noun, where we get the brand name Nike. Uh, Nike means victory. It was the name of the Greek goddess of victory. And so this the 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 verb here, uh, nikeo, indicates uh, having victory or to be conquered by something. And so it should be translated to get a stronger sense here. Don't be conquered by evil. Don't let your sin nature conquer you. But instead, same verb, conquer evil with good. Conquer evil with good. It's pretty straightforward. It's just difficult to do. When somebody does evil to you, as Paul says earlier, don't repay, don't repay evil with evil. We see the same kind of thing quoted in passages in the Old Testament. Proverbs 20 verse 22 says, do not say I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. It's not our responsibility to take justice into our own hands. We are to put it before the throne of God in prayer, cast all our cares before him, and he will sustain us. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine says, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to this man according to his work. We're, we have a higher standard. We're going to treat that person in terms of what's best for them. That is what the Bible speaks of when it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 24, 17 states, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So this gets to the heart of the matter, no pun intended. This gets to the real issue is mental attitude, that we can take our enemy to task, we can throw him in jail, uh, taking them to court and having them thrown in jail. We can go into battle with the enemy and kill the enemy, but we are not to do it with an attitude of personal joy and vindictiveness. We are not to let our heart be glad when he stumbles. It would be better for him not to stumble at all or to come to repentance. 
We're not to take joy in the pain of others. Why? Verse 18, lest the Lord see it and it displeases him. See, and that attitude of personal vengeance displeases the Lord because it is counter to his justice. Lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. See, if we get in the way by trying to execute our idea of repayment and justice, then the Lord might, according to this verse, relinquish the wrath that he would bring upon that that person for what they have done. So by getting involved and getting in God's way, rather than uh, intensifying the misery on the person who has offended us, it might cause God to relinquish his punishment on the individual, and they end up getting off scot-free because we have failed to stay out of the situation and leave it in the hands of the Lord. Okay, next time we're going to come back to Romans 13 and deal with the important issue related to government and the role of the Christian to the government. And this is important, especially today, because we are faced with a government that is, through its through the bureaucracy, becoming more and more antagonistic and hostile to Christians. So how are we to handle that? And uh, again, we need to look at what Paul says in Romans 13, and we're going to look at some other passages, such as Daniel chapter 1, and uh, how Daniel and uh, his friends handled it when they were living in a pagan, hostile environment. And that's how we are. We need to think more in terms like Daniel and his friends, and less in terms of uh, of some sort of... uh, posse that's sent out to right all of the wrongs and to change the government with some sort of overthrow. That is not the focal point of Romans chapter 13. So we'll come back and begin Romans 13 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. We pray that you would help us to see areas in our own lives where we need to be consistent with your word in terms of loving others, especially those who have done evil to us, those who have harmed us. It doesn't mean that we just roll over in foolishness, but it doesn't mean that we take matters of justice into our own hands. We have to be wise, but we have to be righteous as well. And, Father, we pray for wisdom in learning how to apply these passages. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.